Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is Highway Diary episode two, no, uh, no, 398 with Ryan Rogers, New Orleans comedian. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thrill. No problem. This has been uh, like a year in the making. Um, I got to say, everyone, you know, you know, sometimes people get jealous you know, sometimes people are like, oh, my God, why is this comedian getting this show? I want this show. Here's what I noticed about Ryan Rogers. You, you hit the scene like a bat out of hell and you got real funny real fast. Um, what do you attribute that to? Did you have a theater background? Like you, it seemed like you were two years in and already like up to speed and just as good as all the other comics out there. How, how'd you do it? That's very sweet. First of all, thank you for saying that, Eric. It's been quite a journey. Uh, I'm only about two and a half years into the entire comedy thing at this point. So when we met, it was one and a half years in. But I am, I'm a, a incredibly <laughs> sorry. Great Bless podcasting, you. right there. Great podcasting. Uh, I'm an incredibly hard worker. I I do stand up six to seven nights a week, and it's been like that since night one, uh, since my first open mic. I work really, really hard, but I also, I don't necessarily have a real theater background um, per se. I stage manage a couple shows, not not a whole lot of acting experience, but I worked in uh, as a writer for years in the advertising space. So at this point in my career, I'm about 16 years in, uh, and I wrote for companies like all the way from small mom and pop startups, all the way up to Google and Disney and Pandora and Clorox and all these major clients. So I have a huge leg up with writing. Uh, and I was also, I had a really kind of popular, uh, scare quotes, blog for a long time where I wrote essays and I published with a ton of literary journals and Buzzfeed and Hello Giggles and a bunch of magazines. So I had this huge writing background before I even stepped onto the stage. So if I attribute anything to my uh, success in comedy, it's the, it's the writing and the perseverance for sure. So what, it like copywriting, like advertising copywriting type of stuff? For sure. Yeah, I worked in a ton of agencies and then I went over to work in-house at Google in San Francisco for a while. So yeah, copywriting uh, and then a lot of creative writing too. A lot of the essays and, and manifesto-y, romantic-y stuff I did to kind of balance the work. What What is your personal manifesto? <laughs> I had a blog for a while called exboyfriendmaterial.com. It's still active. But that's where I kind of like uh, flexed my creativity a lot when it came to like uh, really personal stuff and kind of using that as an outlet for uh, the frustrations of being queer and in love and single and dating and all of the things above. And I even wrote uh, for years, I wrote the sex column for my university's newspaper under a pen name for almost my entire time in college. Uh, and that's what actually started my career in advertising, a local uh, owner of an ad agency read one of my columns and was like, you got to come work for us. You're a fantastic writer. So that's how it started. And uh, I worked my way up from like a copywriting intern all the way up to a creative director over multiple offices. So I, I had a really, I was 24 overseeing like multiple offices and, and a lot of really seasoned professionals that were a lot older than me. So a lot of trial by fire. Was your sex blog about, uh, would you interview couples and interview people about their history and kind of report back? Is that how it worked? Or was sometimes, it all personal well, stuff? Sometimes, but a lot of it was really personal. But even, I learned, especially with my uh, with my column uh, at my university at UL Lafayette, that a lot of, 
even though I was writing as a queer person under a pen name, a lot of the stuff was really universal. And so no one knew who was writing it. They, they thought it might have been a woman or uh, they, they didn't really know. But a lot of the stuff got incredible feedback all the time. And then once I started the blog, which was kind of a continuation of the column, it leaned very heavy into the queer space. So it was a lot of personal stuff, but it was very... I tried to keep the themes really broad. I tried to be honest, but like speak really universally, really universally about being in love and being not in love and a lot of that stuff. And I think that really, it really struck a chord with a lot of people. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, how did, was your, was your first open mic the motivation to do it out of heartbreak? Like what motivated you to you know, put put it all on the line. Like when all is lost after a breakup, it's like, you know what? I should be the only one talking in the room now. That's so funny. That's hysterical. I feel like that's how a lot of people get started. Mine was two prong. Two things happened to get me to that first mic. The first one was I went to a show. It was, an, it was during summertime. It was during June uh, of 20, 2021, maybe, is when I started. 2020? No, 2021. June of 2021, I went to a show just to go see it. My friend dragged me to it, like a lot of us, when we see our first open mic. And it was so bad. And it was outdoors during June. And there was no mic and no AC and outdoor. And I just watched one comic after another. Some were pretty funny, but most were pretty bad. Uh, and I just watched it. And I was just like, oh, I could fucking write circles around these motherfuckers. And so I just prepared a set, a five-minute set, minute to minute, and performed it at Ugly Dog Saloon that Friday and just crushed. Just like it was it was kind of a it was a really big moment. But the other thing that brought me to the stage was I got sober around that time. Like the week before the week or two before my first open mic, I gave up drugs and alcohol completely. All of it. I don't even smoke weed till this day. I've been sober. I, I'll make a thousand days sober on Saturday. So my comedy date and my stand up, uh, my stand up debut date. And my sobriety date almost line up completely. I've never gotten on stage after a shot ever to this day. I've never had a shot, walked on stage, a beer, uh, weed, nothing. So that's um, why. Uh, congratulations. Two years. Um, Thank you. How did you know it was time to quit? Now, a lot of people say, oh, they have a dark night of the soul. They have a, uh, a rock bottom. You know, what was... Uh, when did you realize that you had a problem? Like most addicts, it was a gradual like degression. It was a it was a gradual like shit starts falling apart. Uh, and a lot of addicts, the, what what happens when you start doing? I, I'm a member of NA. I I went to a meeting this week. Uh, I've been going to meetings since I got clean. Uh, but a lot of that stuff is slowly committing suicide. It's the language they use, and uh, like not having control over your like your life becomes unmanageable, and that's kind of what happened. Where my cocaine problem was kind of out of control. Like I've been using for every day for years, like a gram minimum every day. And it just got to the point where like, at least I'm not doing coke at the office. And then I started doing coke at the office. At least I'm not doing coke. I'm not, at least I'm not flying internationally with drugs on me. And then I was doing that. Uh, and then, so I gave up coke when I moved back to New Orleans from San Francisco during the pandemic. I, I kind of had to, because uh, I was still buying shitty New Orleans coke at the same rate as really quality Bay area Coke. And I was just doing the same volume. And I was like, this, it's not even fun anymore. It's not fun. It's just crap. Uh, and I had just recently gotten married. 
So I was just like doing coke and I had to just cut that out. So there was a six month period where I was off drugs, but I was still drinking and smoking weed like a motherfucker. So it's just fucking way worse. So now I'm not on coke, but I'm still coming home at five, six a.m. And that happened a couple of times in a row, like in the same week where I was just coming home to my newlywed husband, blacked out with people, bringing parties of people from the bar to my house at like 5.30 a.m. And that's when it was like a real come to G. It was right before Christmas is when I, I got clean off Coke. And then June is when I got clean off alcohol as well, where it was just like, this has to stop because it's hurting me and the people in my life. But it's also really fucking boring. It's boring. What's the worst? What's the best case scenario for this night? If I'm getting trashed, what's the best case? I've already done it. I've done it hundreds of times. The best version of this night. I can't top it anymore. So it was just all the all the drinks and all the the blow and all the weed. It was just I'd done it all. I'd done everything that was allotted in my body up until that point. I just had nothing left. Did you make deals with yourself all the time? Like, oh, well, I'll just do this to do that. I'll reward myself like this. Like, what was that kind of spiral for you? Like, oh, that was constant, constant. Before I got really clean and started going to NA, which really saved my life. Before I started like doing, going to meetings, actually, I would do the bargaining shit constantly. Where it's like, I'll reward myself with this. Or as soon as five o'clock hits, I won't start drinking until five. Or um, I, I'll, I'll only do one bag tonight. I won't order an eight ball. Or like, I'll only do it if someone offers to me. Na name a dimension in which you can bargain and I've done it. All of it. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, what is an eight ball? Is that 3.5 grams? Like a Nailed it. Nailed okay. it. That's like, yeah. a, that's like a, uh, for weed, the weed equivalent of a eighth. That's yeah. an eight ball? Yeah, 3.5. Gotcha. Which gotcha. for me, for, for me would probably last a weekend back in the day, like Friday night to Sunday morning. I'd probably do an eight ball, maybe an eight ball and change. Mm -hmm. um, did it affect your work performance? You said, I won't do it at work. And then you started to, did that, did people start to catch on? Yeah, uh, it, it's a really long and harrowing story. But like when I was at Google, the short version is when I was at Google, that's when it spiked. Uh, and me and my entire team were all, doing coke at a crazy amount uh like a like a daytime start doing start doing coke at like maybe 11 30 a.m around the 11 30 to 2 window and just wouldn't stop but then we'd be done we'd be home with our spouses and partners by like 5 36 p.m so we do all our coke during the day drink like a lot and then get home in time to watch survivor and stuff so it didn't necessarily affect it didn't necessarily affect my employment but it was definitely like tough and then after that when i was getting clean that's when it did affect my work because i was when, when you get clean like that's a whole journey unto itself and the beginning of it is so hard it's so hard to like get your life direct your life where you want it you're just in a state of transition so obviously work is not going to get your focus you're probably more high functioning drunk or high at work like in that like peak stage than you are when you're in recovery because then you're dog shit because you're going through like all this withdrawal stuff. You're going through like your endorphins, your endorphins just gone. They go away. Your serotonin drops, like all that stuff. So yeah. And then you have to, you have to navigate the relationships you want and don't want in your life in that period. So obviously work. Well, that's, I mean, and that's, it, it worked out for the best though. It affected my job and that, that I got fired eventually from my last job, my last corporate job. But that's the week I started stand up like around that time. 
So I, I transitioned. The getting fired was the best thing that happened to me because then I could fully focus on getting clean and focus on comedy. It's what I did. Was it like the withdrawal stuff that was affecting your performance? A little bit. I was really moody. Mm. And I'd, I'd become like a personality conflict for the people that were. I was a manager at this major tech company. This is after Google and after Pandora. So I'd moved to New Orleans. Pandemic was going on. I was working remotely for this major tech. I was making so much money. And I had a team that was reporting to me. And because I was like navigating all this new shit and my, my chemicals were all fucked up, I was such a bitch. I was a terror to work with. And I just kept getting called into HR for a personality conflict. Like you can't talk to people like that. You can't treat people that way. And then at that, that's, and that's why I ended up getting canned is because it was just like, and I, I was really grateful. I, I wasn't sad. I walked downstairs and told my husband, like, I just got fired, but here's the plan. Mm-hmm. And it just happened. Re- everything happened really quickly. I was miserable in that job anyway. I'm miserable mm-hmm. in that career for a while. So it was good. Was there a person that you noticed um, was like the canary in the coal mine for you where you're like, oh, well, I am an addict, but I don't want to be like that guy without uh, naming names? Not, not necessarily. Not 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 in my like active addiction stuff. But I mean, Drew, my husband, is the one that really like I, I got sober for me and a major percentage for us because he's he's incredible. Drew is my business partner. He's my manager. He's, my, he's in the other room right now working. Like we, we cohabitate, we co-work. I, lo- I love this man to death and I couldn't lose him. And that was really on the line towards the end with, when the drinking kind of tipped over where like he was like, I'm leaving, packed bags, left, he left, I'm leaving. And I, that was the day he walked out and went to his parents' house is the last day I had a drink to this day. Mm. Mm. Did mm-hmm. you feel like really cringe about your behavior? Was it, did you shame spiral during that time? Like- what Dude, is wrong yeah. with me? I looked different. I had a, a significant, like a, a bunch more weight on me then. I look at old pictures and it's very cringe. Um, do I miss a lot of like the good times that come with that? Totally. I wish I could go out right now. Like Olivia Rodrigo, I live in New Orleans and Olivia Rodrigo is coming to New Orleans this weekend and I wish I could go. But concerts and festivals and Mardi Gras in particular are the things that are still really hard for me. Uh, even like, you know, nearly you know, a thousand days into sobriety, like it's still hard. Um, but doing comedy, I work in bars every night. So it's, it, that doesn't really affect me because I'm there to work at all. And people drinking around me doesn't really affect me. But there's something about like the shared, you know, atmosphere of like, I know for a fact this would be better on drugs and alcohol. I know it. I know a beer would make this experience better. So I'm just not going to do it. Uh, cringe, though, I don't. I don't know. I, I, I was a lot of fun when I was fucked up. I was like, I'm just not going to mince words about that. Like I was, I was a blast to hang out with. Was I probably so annoying and like talking people's ears off and wanting to show people YouTube videos at the after party? Yeah, that's embarrassing. But like, it was also very fun. And people don't talk about that, about addiction. It's like towards the end, it gets really dark and really sad. But like, you don't know that until later. So at the time you're having the time of your life. Mm. Uh, were you worried about health consequences no i didn't give a fuck i was i was pretty miserable uh deep down that was part of my addiction shit like i would go to bed sometimes uh after like doing a shit ton of coke for you know all day and i would hear my heartbeat in my ears like that's how hard my heart was beating and i would think to myself this probably i probably i'm probably not gonna wake up 
and that'd be like the last thought I'd have is like it's probably it. Where did that come from? What how was how was your cup empty that you had to fill it like that? What what was that? I think a lot of uh like uh self acceptance issues, a lot of like uh body dysmorphia shit, which I still kind of struggle with. But like oh I think I think a lot of it had to do with um I just always wanted more. I'm still like that now. Like you see with my comedy shit, even from far away. Like I just always want the next thing. I want more. I want to be the best at it. I want to outdo everyone. And and drugs were a really fun way to like practice that. Where it's like, oh, you think you can drink? I'll I'll be here way longer than you. Uh, you'll you'll go home long. I will close this motherfucker down. I'm not afraid of a stalemate. So I think that empty cup thing is a lot of like um, that overachiever student body president shit that lives inside me and always wants like overperformance and feeling less than. And you know, I was when my shit spiked. I was living in San Francisco. I was alone there for a while before my husband moved there. And then when he moved there, I was like, I don't know if this is what I want. You know, so it's a lot of that destabilization shit will will deeply contribute to, to active addiction for sure. Um, is is New Orleans a good place to get sober and find moderation? That's a fucking awesome question. I love that question. I don't mind it at all. I mean, where would I rather be? Sobriety and, and any kind of addiction lives inside you. Like, yeah, environmental shit will contribute. But once you start like a program or you want to get clean or you have a sponsor, you work steps, like whatever your path is, church, whatever it is, that's an inside job. So it kind of doesn't matter. You can choose when to leave situations and when to, when is the best, where, where are the best boundaries for you? So I don't really give a fuck where I am in mm-hmm. terms of my sobriety. I don't find this city uh, particularly difficult, except Mardi Gras is like the only time where I, I go on tour. Like as a comedian, I have the opportunity to get some sponsors raise some money, book some shows, get the fuck out of town for a week, which is what I did the last two years. Got out of town for like 10 days, did shows every night and came back. Mardi Gras was over. Didn't even have to deal with it. I just circumvented it. And I think I'll do that for the rest of my life living in New Orleans. Like I will find a reason to get out of town. Um, But day to day here, like it's no better or worse than anywhere else. It's just, it just isn't. And in fact, like I get exposed to a lot of shit that reminds me, Eric, of like, I don't want to be that person. I'll see shit all the time. I perform on Bourbon Street 20 minutes. I do 20 minutes of time at Oz on Bourbon Street every week, every Thursday. And I see shit at the gay bar where I'm just like, I'm so glad that's not me. So it's not bad. It's actually pretty helpful. It's a great outpatient rehab, New Mm. Orleans is. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. For me, I'm very mimetic. And so when I was in Los Angeles and everyone was hiking and fitness and superficiality and trying to look good, and I was like, okay, I'll, that's what we do here. I hike and I try to be clean, like, you know, try to look good and, you know, all that stuff. And then when I met, went to New Orleans, I was just like shoving my face with po' boys. I was eating fried chicken like crazy. And I'm just like, okay, that's what they do here. I might as well, you know. <laughs> I get it. I, I went in Rome. I I totally understand, but I you have to remember I'm I'm born and raised here. I I'm, I grew up in this city, so a lot of this stuff is like very very like part of it's part of the texture of the city to me in a way that doesn't even I don't even see it anymore. And I live on Magazine Street near Audubon Park. I go I skate and I skate pretty much every day in Audubon Park. I go swimming. Like I make sure that like there's enough wellness shit here to balance that. Like it's mm. a great city to be outdoors in too. Mm. So um 
my interpretation of gay lifestyles often is, um, you know, I went to Eugene Lane College at the New School, and my girlfriend was all of her friends were gay dudes, and so I was always just like, what, asking questions like, what you did, what? Um, but I just feel like because there's no like child rearing, unless the, uh, a gay couple, you know, husbands like go to get a foster kid or adopt somebody like that manifest uh hedonistic lifestyle because you don't have like a dependent to look after often in the culture um is that was that something uh like the the party culture of the gay lifestyle that kind of uh drew you in did the party did the party culture of the queer community draw me into partying more? Is that yeah, an addiction? Asking? Was that like a, a, a it certainly doesn't help. I think you nailed it that like a lot of queer people my age for many reasons. Yeah, I'm 35. Uh, a lot of queer people my age for um, how do I put this? There are two major factors and it's like the party lifestyle of like, you know, being a circuit gay and drugs being so available. And so entrenched. What's a circuit and, gay? Wait, what's a circuit gay? A circuit gay are like the guys who go that you might see on Instagram that are like completely ripped. And they're always at like all night ravey parties where they'll travel mm -hmm. and be like, oh, and, and they're called circuit parties where it's like you have an EDM performer, like a DJ or whatever. And it's like outdoors or it's it's at a gay club and like you, you dance all night. You wear like a harness, like you're sweaty, you do G drink water like that's a circuit gay like they they uh, they and a lot of these guys are like doctors and lawyers gays with so much dispendable income um but you hit something on the head about like peter pan syndrome a little bit about like you don't really have a reason to grow up because you don't have any dependents gay marriage was legalized what eight nine years ago so for a lot of us that wasn't even in the that wasn't even a possibility our entire lives up until you know less than a decade ago it was available to us so a lot of us were like never gonna have kids I don't have the ability to get married. And here's the most important part of this whole thing. We don't have a lot of people my age don't have a lot of gay elders because they all, most of them died during the AIDS epidemic. We lost so many art, artists and like actual um, thought leaders and activists and shit. They're, they're just gone. So we didn't have, we, we had no role models, no ability to have children or get married. So why the fuck wouldn't you? So I found that I, even when I travel now, dude, like I seek out the gay bars, even though I don't drink, because that's where community is. That is, you will walk in to a drag show or just a fucking normal trivia night or whatever at a local gay bar, and it is just like being home. But that does, for a lot of us, lend itself to connection. And the way that uh, one of the easiest ways to connect with people is like, do you want a cigarette? Do you want, a, do you want some weed? I've got some Coke. I'm doing coke. Do you want to do coke? Like that is just part of how you connect. That's how, I mean, that's how straight people do it. That's how a lot of people meet, you know? And so I do think that all of those factors do contribute and it did contribute to me. I was doing blow at the gay bar at, like I said, at, at 2 PM. And so it's part of it. You know, I don't think it's the reason at all. Like I said, the reason's here, the reason's inside, but it's not, it's not helpful. Mm. Um, so I think we've touched on some of these questions, but like, uh, you know, what happened to facilitate your rock bottom? I think we got that. Um, how do you uh, avoid going back to the abyss? And you, and for you, that's NA, and going being active in in NA is is integral to your continued sobriety. 
I think so. I think that's that's a big reason. I went hard on NA when I first started. Like I went to a meeting every day for about a year. That's a lot. That's a big thing. I, I still have a key to the building for my home group. I'm a member of an all-black home group in Central City. I'm the only white guy in the whole group. Have been since the beginning, like since I started. Um, and it really saved my life, like I mentioned. Uh, so that that's something is like knowing that I have the support of my home group and the program. And if I ever need a meeting, I'll just go. And I can go in whatever city I'm in. Usually there's, there's meetings. Uh, but the biggest thing for me about not going back to the place that I was in, the, the abyss, as you called it, like, I just have too much more to live for now. Like, I, I do. I'm so passionate about comedy. It has given me a new lease on life, truly. Um, I don't think I mentioned this, but I also went to art school uh, for, for painting, for visual art. And I... And I'm a writer. So I always have held, had this really aggressive need to express myself. And comedy was just this new thing where it just brought all this shit together. It was performative. I, it gave me the attention I wanted. I was able to go out to bars every night, which I still do, which is something I love, even though I don't drink anymore. Uh, so I have a lot invested in my comedy career and like where I'm going and where I want to go and how I want to. I want to get to a place where I can make so much money doing comedy that like, and I, I am right now. I, I, I made a lot of money doing comedy last year, probably more than uh, most comics working, especially in Louisiana. Very sustainable income with a lot of the programs that I've built at, with partners, with like venue partners and with um, just, just long-term sustainability shit based on that. And uh, it's just, it's too much now. There's too much at stake for me to think about having a fucking beer, even though I don't want to. I have no desire to drink no desire to do cocaine or smoke weed i've done it it's all done so i don't i don't think i'm ever going back i never want to say never anything could happen but i just feel like this marriage is too important my career is too important being a, a vessel for other people to seek out sobriety is way too important than me being selfish and and trying to fill an immediate uh impulse it's just too much well, let me say this. There's some people that are good when there's a crowd, like a proper crowd. We did a show together where there was no show. I mean, people the people would not stop talking. And then you right. demand, you forged a show. And then I followed you. I was like, oh, my God, thank God Ryan Rogers went before me because then they started paying attention. So there's like a skill level to like, you know, ride a wave that's already rocking when the audience is into it. When the audience is totally not into it and they're trying to do their own thing, talk amongst themselves. Right. You were so funny when I saw you. you. Some brewery, I forget the name of it. Uh, I remember the name of it. It was uh, Oak. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something uh, Oak. Uh, brewery. And, um, Oak Tree no, Brewery. Oak Tree Brewery. And the night that I was in town, like, the people were not vibing and then you were so funny and so commanding and charismatic that you started the show that is uh, something like for me to to push through that like i i know i have jokes i know i'm funny and but to 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 force you to want to watch me is a, a skill that's like i don't really have that that kind of that kind of muscle um so when i see other people can do that i'm like damn you you with you willed the show to happen and like i say thank god i went after you because i don't know if i could have been the eight in the bullet like you did so gracefully so uh just want to tell you that 
Um, that means a lot, dude. That I mean, to be honest, like I knew when I started comedy that even if the jokes aren't hitting that night, and even if like I'm still working on some shit, or even if the vibes aren't there, I'm bringing fucking energy. That is something I can always guarantee. Like, and I, I will tell bookers that like you could, I can one thousand percent with no hesitation and no hyperbole, there will be energy. People will watch. I, I can guarantee that. I will scream at them and will them into paying attention and, and then laughing. So I appreciate you saying that. It's, it is it is the one thing that I know above everything else. All of my skills at roasting, at writing, at stage presence, energy is the thing that like I can at least guarantee. So thank you for saying that. And I'm sure you would have done a fucking fantastic job taking the bullet. I'm sure it would have been fine. <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I just uh, maybe I'm stuck in my ways. I've never told this story before, but I was almost gay one time. And let me tell you what happened. Tell uh, me. Oh, my God. In New Orleans, I got cheated on twice in a row. Baba, like, like brutal, you know, just like, what the fuck? What happened? Typical and, New Orleans. Oh, my <laughs> Typical. God. Trying to put a saddle on a wild horse sometimes. It's just like, you Always. know, and, and you're just like, but I, you were my girlfriend. Like, what the fuck? Totally. And there was these, all these, like dudes they were ha there was just like the phoenix bar and then there was just mm. like circles outside and i think i've just played siberia um which was my favorite place to play on monday nights with uh cory mack um i just did a i just did a siberia cory mack show a couple weeks ago it's now run by scabies the clown but cory hosted and i featured but yeah they're bringing comedy back to siberia was that on a monday night is that when they're doing it Sure fucking was. Fuck uh, yeah. It's called Peel and Shtick now, which means like three per less performers, three comedian. Corey yeah. hosting. It was called Comic Strip when I was uh around. Um, same same show. I just loved it so much. The the problem is they would always they played a joke on me where they would have the burlesque uh dancers up and then they would call me up because I would be wrestling a boner the whole my whole set, and I'm like, guys, you, you guys are torturing me. Um hysterical. But, hysterical. But uh <laughs> So then, you know, I play the show, uh, you know, uh, I'm all depressed. I probably, you know, I don't know if I was good or not that night. I, I was I was miserable. And somehow I just walked a couple blocks trying to find my car. I like lost my car. I was just in, in a in a lost way at this moment. And someone was like, oh, there's a. There's a blowjob party at the Phoenix bar and these two words together. were just like. Shut what? up. Shut up. <laughs> There's a blowjob what? Like, it, <laughs> like I've heard of quinceañeras. You know, I've heard of Christmas and, and Thanksgiving. I've never heard of a blowjob party. And, you, you know, when, when, you're, when you're a straight guy on the rebound, it's like, wait a minute, day one? So if I'm gay today there's just a festival of blowjobs? Like, that's not, that's not in the straight world. You know, you kind of want to yeah. You're on to something, though. I mean, that's how it is. I mean, to be completely honest, like, I was just having that conversation last night with someone about, like, they were just waxing poetic about how it's so much easier for us. And I couldn't even hide the look on my face. I'm like, it is. It has been forever. And it's not. A, it's it's so not a problem. And it's just always available at any given time. Yeah, that Crazy. blew my mind. And I, I, I think I made it to the door and I was like, uh, you know what I mean? But the whole time I was just wrestling with the notion of, of what is this? Like, I, you know, I'm taking girls out to Bacchanal. I'm taking girls, you know what I mean? 
you're like three Funny. dates in and then fine. And then they, you know, you, you think you're dating someone for three months and you don't know when, when they cheated on you, you know? So I was just in a, in a tizzy at least, you know, so, so coming from blowjob parties, how did, how did you get married? Why, why did you do that? <laughs> That's hysterical. It's, it is a very long story for another, another pod, but the the short story is like, he was a fan of my blog. Originally he wrote in fan mail literally like old school email. Um, and I was kind of seeing someone at the time, very, very casually, no labels. And this dude like kind of wore me down. It was like, let me, I, I need to take you for a drink. Like, like I need to, I would love to take you to dinner. And I'd be like, yeah, maybe let's see how it goes. And then we went to, I met him for a happy hour at Cane and Table on Decatur street after work. And I was already interviewing for my job in San Francisco. So on job number two, on date number two, I had to tell this motherfucker, I'm moving across the country. This is this is fun, but I'm moving. And after a, about a week, he was like, I want to try it. Let's try long distance. I have serious feelings for you. And I felt the same way. So within a month of us meeting, we got our parents together because I was moving. And he was like, look, if you're leaving, I don't want to be a stranger to your family. Like, let's let's do this. So we did. My parents, his parents, we all went to dinner. Uh, we were like, I think we're going to actually give this a shot for real. And I just knew, you know, it was going to be really hard. And it was. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Harder than re addiction recovery. Long distance with the person you would eventually spend your life with was the hardest thing of it. I'd never lived alone. I'd never lived outside of Louisiana. And now I'm balancing that with this new person and like making sure that they feel valued and attended, like attended to. And then he moved out there about a year later. We did a year to the day of long distance, to the day. And then he moved out there. We spent a couple of years in, in SF. And then when pandemic hit, we moved back and then we got hitched. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey, like navigate. And that's what a lot of my material is. It's, it's gay shit. It's family shit. It's sobriety shit. It's married shit, basically, like across the board. Because I still feel like gay marriage is still the Wild West in a lot of ways. Like, people don't know what the fuck they're doing. And we're just learning after almost a decade that, like, you know, gay weddings, gay marriage, all of it is it's just as boring as straight shit now. It just is. It's so fucking boring. I went to a gay wedding recently. It was so fucking lame. Etsy centerpieces and fucking Vista print invites. Like, just shit. Dancing to fucking at, uh, All of Me by John Legend. It's terrible. I was like, this shit used to be cool. So, I mean, like the, the marriage thing, it, it, it truly is the best thing. I wouldn't be sober without him. I wouldn't be doing comedy without him. Like he really is like the thing that holds. And now he's my co-producer. Every show we've done since day one, Drew, even for my weekly Friday night mic that I've had for two years, Drew is doing the music, running the light. Drew's getting walk-up songs. Drew sets up the room. Not me. He does it. It's crazy that, and then now we run a festival together where it's the two of us, and we have a board meeting tonight for it. So he is just like, our 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 marriage is really uh, not without its problems, like any marriage. You know, you got to work through shit. We got to do a lot of hard work. We spend a lot of time together, but it's like, what the fuck are you gonna do? I'm never leaving him. He's never leaving me. Like it's just done. Um. All right, I got got a couple more questions. I, I already have you longer than I anticipated. Uh, you're so interesting. Um, Thank you. And this, this is kind of a joke question, but what was harder for you to come out to your parents as gay or a comedian? What 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 did they take worse? Oh God, the gay thing was way comedian. They were just like they've. I've always been this way. I'm, I'm always like trying new stuff artistically and athletically, and like 
get I'll go through like a tattoo phase, get a ton of tattoos. I'll go to like like I said, art school. I'll start trying to play an instrument for a while. Like I'm just like that. So when I told them I was doing comedy, they the, my parents have come to a ton of shows. Mom and dad will sit there. I did a huge show at the Joy Theater in in October, November. Huge show, massive, fucking hundreds of people at the Joy on Canal Street. My parents were front and center, so they loved this shit. The gay thing wasn't that. It was more of a shock for me to like come to terms and talk to them about it than it was for them. They they knew they they raised me. I'm their firstborn of three of us. So they fucking know, you know. And I came out kind of young, like seventeen ish. Now that's not young. When I came out in two thousand fucking seven, I was really young for a seventeen year old to sixteen seventeen year old to be like. I was definitely seventeen, maybe. Damn gay. Before that, though, when I was like a sophomore in high school, they found gay porn on the computer. So it was like it was done deal. Like even way way before that. So that wasn't hard. It wasn't as hard. I'm very lucky too. To have really cool supportive parents that like love my husband, and I have fucking jackpot in laws who are fucking awesome too. So, I mean, my parents are really cool. So to answer your question, gay but only slightly, just like you. <laughs> um, this is kind of the first thing I want to talk about, and I'm saving it for the end. In in your opinion, now, when I was there, I, I was kind of more like the non-PC comic, and I felt like I was coming up against a bunch of SJW types. Um, so that was my, and they all did coke, by the way, and they all virtue signaled their politics, which I found infuriating. Um, and the New Orleans comedy scene is always divided. It takes different forms. There's the in crowd, the out crowd. And it, and like my fiefdom, your fiefdom, stay off my lawn. Um, I also feel that the membrane between the spirit world and the and the living is thinner in New Orleans. Maybe it's on some kind of ley line. Maybe the the above ground tombs. You know, the spirits are whispering uh, arcane information from the other side. You know, desperate loser souls from the other are trying to pull you in the dark direction. Um, good and evil my my land your land what in your opinion is the driver of the bifurcation of the scene and what are pathways to for togetherness unbelievable question and i i think that a lot of things you touched on uh, about the virtue signaling are still happening really hard about the moral high grounding about everything it's really tough. I think it's a very complicated answer. But what I can give you is I think that a lot of comics who kind of were, I hate this word, gatekeeping before the pandemic still feel like they have that kind of power still. And they just don't. They don't. A lot of people have come up since then. A lot of people have, are, are fucking outlapping these people who don't have any power. They just, they, they, they're, they've got their fiefdom and that's it. And they will continue to keep that in a chokehold. But this is not the world we live in anymore. A lot of people have come up. A lot of them are super diverse. A lot of them have different takes that are a much more inclusive and funnier. And I think that that upsets a lot of people. And I think that that's what's keeping the divide strong. The comedy house portion of the, problem is a very easy way to be like, I don't go to this, I don't perform at this club for these reasons. 
And what I always have to say about that is, is pretty complex as well. But the bottom line is like, number one, I've been performing with them since, you know, I was a month or two into comedy. So uh, they have been nothing but supportive of black comedians, women, queer people, giving us like platforms, paying us fairly and on time every performance. And I perform there, I'm performing there, I'm hosting there tonight. And I think a lot of the people who don't, are, are, aren't gelling and are still stuck in the past, uh, aren't really taking that into account about like the support that this place has given us. They want to play, you know, I have, I heard a story, this thing happened, it did happen. Uh, something that happened long before I was doing comedy. And there's just no understanding that comedians are going to do what they want. And I'm looking out for my own career. I'm not looking out for yours. You're not looking out for mine. I'm going to do what's best for me. And if these people are going to give me the opportunity to have stage time and experiment and feel community and feel supported, I'm going there. And, and you don't have anything else to offer. You just don't. And a couple of comics tried to court me when I first started doing comedy, taking me to lunch and being like, you shouldn't perform at Comedy House for these 10 reasons. And every time I'd look them in the eye and be like, that sounds awesome. I'm on board. What do you got? Oh, nothing. Okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to go do this thing over here. So I think the solution, to be completely honest, is to... Uh, Wait, I'm it's, sorry. It's, I'm sorry. Uh, can I interject? Who, whoever yeah. took you out to lunch, are they a jealous loser? I'm not going to say that. Okay. I'm not going to label them as that, but like, this was, this was really early on, Eric. Like, I, I was know. brand, I was brand new. Um, and, but to be honest, like, I have, I will work, in, I will work anywhere that'll happen. If the money's right, and I feel like respected and supported about like the time that I'm getting and the money I'm getting, and that it's probably like a safe environment, I'm probably going to go. So like, I know I feel that way. And I can't speak for everyone else. But a lot of the people who, who might feel differently from another more divided part, want to keep the scene divided in that way. And they also don't really go outside of New Orleans. So they have really strong feelings about how their fiefdom should be run. And yet, and yet they're not regular. They might go to New York like once every two years or whatever for a weekend and do like two open mics and be like, I went on the road. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Uh, but they do feel very like they, they don't have the exposure. And when they get very moral high groundy, my gut reaction is to be like, oh, is that how you really feel? You're going to be you want to be famous. You're going to be shocked at how Hollywood works if that's how you feel now. So good luck. And if you feel this way about one particular venue having, you know, a, a, a moral gray area or being problematic, you better do the same vetting process for every venue you want to work in. I'm serious. Go, you want to go work in comedy clubs, not the most savory entertainment venues in America. They're just not. It's, it's, it, we work in entertainment nightlife, like moral high grounding is probably not going to be well received. And if you have those values, that's amazing, but don't, don't punish or penalize the people who are willing to do the work outside of their safe space. Sorry. And so, I just feel, I feel like, thank you so much for saying that. And I feel like with your lifestyle for the years that you were running and gunning, uh, making unsavory lifestyle choices, do you want to forever be branded in your wor worst moment? Or is there a path to redemption? Like you're, uh, you know, 
Great question. I think that while a lot of the um, a lot of a lot of the comics who do moral high ground won't take that into consideration because that is the feeling that binds them together, in my opinion. Because now you have this really uh, vocal minority. You have this group that is very like, this is how I feel. And that gives them something to feel. That gives them an identifier. And that is totally fine and totally fair. And I am willing to reconsider all of my choices. I am willing to self-reflect. I'm willing to make changes at any given time. I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to change. And because who I'm working with right now the venue I'm working at tonight, the one I will tomorrow, the one I did yesterday, I am willing to re-examine all of it. I just don't think everyone else is. And I think that the feeling about like, this is what we've all agreed on and gone on the record about, so we can't change it, that feels pretty closer to the truth and where we are now about like, well, you did go on the record about this. You aren't willing to make concessions. It, it, it has been six five six plus years since you made this decision you're not going to grow away from that you're not going to evolve that is not my problem it's just not like i've got my own family husband self sobriety to look out for i i, I wish you all the best in your ventures but i'm also willing to work outside the system which i think has been a big component of my six, six, success in this space is because i don't really want to play by your rules if you've got that venue that you're holding really tight in the lineup that you want, you can have it. Do you know how big the world is? Like, I, I have a car. I'll just go somewhere else. And I have access to the internet, like a lot of people do. So I'll just make content, too. And I'll get really fucking good at stand-up. I'll, I'll write every day, which I do. I write every day. I write new jokes every day. And I have since the day I started. So I'm just going to outperform you. I'm going to outwrite you. And I'm going to do it outside the system. So like, you can have it. Go right ahead. You want this? It's yours. But that's it. That's the ceiling. <clears throat> so I was shook. I had a different experience. I started in New York at when I was at the new school. And I was a UCB performer before I graduated. Uh, doing I didn't know that. Doing improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade. Um, what? Yeah, bef before I was 22, I was a main stage performer there. And then I moved to L.A. And then the scene was uh, that it kind of died as I left uh, or there was a new UCB that moved to L.A. So I kind of chased. Uh, yeah, I was also working on reality shows in L.A. as my day job. And then um, uh, then I started stand up after being kind of frustrated that I was being limited by the talent level of my scene partners. Uh, that's kind of the. Nice way to say that. And then um, I found that the comedy scene was had very much your mentality. This is the real world. Like, and some of your friends like start hitting it big out of the nowhere. And then I was like, oh, I realized early, I'm not going to be mean to anybody. I'm going to religiously and dogmatically sponsor enthusiasm and beginners. That is my number one thing. I'll never be a dick to anybody. I'll never douche anybody. Then for grad school, when I was in New Orleans getting my master in screenwriting, um, I was shook that a C-level yeah. city, C-level city um, that I've see for college. How about we're a university campus where we're learning how to get as good as possible at stand up 
out of the mainstream line so that we're not stolen from by the by the juggernauts like it is yeah. kill in obscurity and then go to a festival and be a murderer you know and it's like i haven't heard any of this jokes i haven't heard this style of performing yeah it's good to incubate it incubate your talent in a c-level city that's what it is and people that have deep 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 stubborn ass roots there um, feel like they have to be the gatekeepers, like you're saying. And the level of rudeness, just like so, out, so rude, so rude, and deeply call coming from inside the house type shit, where it's like, you don't have to be like this. You could be kind, you could give people chances, you could have more diversity, more diversity. And just because you have like one minority group represented, does not make it a diverse lineup like there's no, there's no need there's no desire to amplify new voices at all it's not happening and i just think the personality shit goes such a long way like i love hearing that from you about supporting new talent and like younger comics and new people that's what i try to do at my mic every week that is what it's for that is what raw dog is for that is the vibe of the room is i've never gotten on stage before let's try it and i'm like let's fucking go let's go but I just don't believe like that kind of enthusiasm exists for a lot of the folks here. And it's, it's really lame. And, but I do agree with everything you said about like this city, one of the things I can say about it, it will teach you fucking stage presence. You will learn very quickly how to deal with any kind of room. And then you will go to a festival and be the best person on your lineup by far. It's just, that is what the city does because we have, we're a tourism city and we have to deal with different audiences, drunk audiences, every night who could be crazy conservative just by virtue of where they're from. They could be wildly liberal or, or wanting to wild out because they're on vacation here and you have to deal with it. This is not the Midwest. You really have to fucking navigate like any kind of room and it makes you an absolute murderer anywhere. So I can say that about it. That's just, just vibe wise of our scene and vibe wise of the nature of our skill level and how we have to adapt quickly You'll, you'll leapfrog other comedians who are just focused on delivery and joke writing and timing. We have to learn all that plus the room. Any yeah. room. And that was the fourth scene I developed in. I started in New York, then I went to LA. Well, uh, no, I kind of started in New York and Philadelphia. Then I went to LA. Then I went there and I was like, you have no idea. First of all, how much more emotionally intelligent I am as a person than the townies that never leave. Uh, second of all, the 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 hubris of how rude they were of like oh no you can't use this word it's like i've been doing it since i was 16 how about you shut the fuck up i was so and then me hitting uh like being like no fuck you then they were like oh he's a problem cuz i wasn't kissing their ring hard enough these these people that had like a quarter of the experience of me in one city and so i think yeah, I, I really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way real fast and they're like oh you don't know how this town works you got to kiss my belt buckle it's like you bombed with social justice warrior virtue signaling math puns stop talking to me so anyway yeah the the yeah. level of drugs that they do and the level of of um virtue signaling all comes from fear of being original which is the only currency in comedy so i just saw their scarcity mindset like, oh, no, this is my fiefdom. You stay out. It's like, you, you OK, but do you not understand that you're not getting better because you keep booking the same emotional support hacks? Anyway, sorry that I, I have a little bit more of a dogmatic view of these people. I hate them so much. I think they're ruining the scene uh, to to pat themselves on the back.
I want to I want to look for the good in everyone too, but I I often feel the same way you do. And it takes everything inside of me to be like this is for you to change or this is for you to set another example for newer comics. Let them be like that. They will continue they are not changing. It's just not happening. But if you want to see change, you have to be the fucking change you want to see in the world or whatever. Mm. So it, it, I have to be like, well, what I can do is bring gay people from all around America to here with my festival and give them a fucking microphone. That's what I can do. I can walk the walk with inclusivity and diversity and pay them, by the way. All of our performers get paid for our festival. So I'm letting them have it. Go. And here's the other thing. I've invited a lot of those people to apply. I'll, I'll let them in. You want to apply? No, because this venue is involved. Like, it's just like they would rather, they would rather die on this hill, literally, literally die, literally on a hill, die on this hill, than change or adapt. It's just never happening. So I'll extend invitations, get rejected and be like, great, more room for other people. Mm. And, and dude, it took me two years of, of working in this scene to finally hit a wall around, um, bridge building with certain people because i did believe like i gotta kiss the ring buy book them maybe they'll book me like all that shit until i was finally like you know what there's about 30 40 fucking comics in this city who fucking love me and have since day one and i love them too i'm not fucking working with anyone besides them i will book every fucking show the same and with with room for new comedians to come in new comedians to come in but these motherfuckers right here believe in the change these people actually, and they work hard and they're fucking funny. So it's like, I'm tired of trying to build the bridge. I will continue to make attempts, but like, it will not be my number one priority anymore. It just won't. I'm too funny and too driven. And I have too much of a support system among good comedians who fucking like me and like what I fucking stand for. I'm two and a half years into this motherfucker. I just signed a contract with OnlyFans TV for six months. The first comic from Louisiana to do it and the one with the least experience. I'm so fucking proud of myself and I see who my fucking cheerleaders are and I want to fucking raise them up too. This scene can only get better when we all fucking work outside of our comfort zones. It just will. And so many people don't want to. Let them stay where they are. That's more room for us. I talked about the thin membrane between the spirit world and the real world in New Orleans. And it just reminds me of like um, some people in the scene, they're like, um, you know, like residual ghosts, like a Civil War soldier who's like, I got gangrene, I miss mama. You know what I mean? It's like, do you want to see that residual ghost with the same idea they had in their head when they uh, anyway? I'm I am your cheerleader, Ryan Rogers. I saw what you were doing early and I heard whisperings of oh, this guy's good thinks he's a little what? He's funny. Look at him. Um so <laughs> I've always been like, hey, this guy has an abundance mentality, not a scarcity mentality. And I see how you were with other people and you were big sweetie. And I was like, oh my God, another like uh uh surface dweller um who <laughs> I get behind. So I, I think we became good friends during this talk, but this is the first time we actually talked. Uh, but I see what you've been doing from afar, and I've been a big fan and supporter, and it sucks it took so long to get together, but I really appreciate you doing this. Um, how can people find you on the social network? How can people find you doing OnlyFans uh, comedy? Yeah, thanks, Eric. And and I have nice things to say about you after the plug. Uh, my Instagram is at Ryan A. Rogers. My TikTok is Ryan Rogers Comedy. You can find that at me at my website at RyanRogersComedy.com. And OnlyFans com slash Ryan Rogers comedy. So everywhere 
you are wonderful. And I'm, I'm glad you created a space where we can be so candid about this. I do believe in the power of New Orleans comedy for sure. Uh, and I believe that we have the talent to far surpass uh, the divides that we have right now, because you know this, every scene has its divides. Every scene has its politics. Everyone that I've ever visited at least. And I, I want so much more for our scene and I want so much more for the performers who aren't getting the opportunities that others are getting. Like, that's the whole vibe. Like, I just want to raise up our Black, queer, and female-identifying and trans-identifying performers to at least have more space and get fucking microphones and say what they have to say and level up the quality, for sure, without a doubt. And I, I think we've got it. And I want to keep pursuing that because that actually makes me feel better about where I come from. And when I do leave New Orleans eventually, I want to be proud of this, what I contributed to it. So I believe we've got it. We'll get somewhere. Yeah, thanks, brother. And, and you know, what's so funny is like some some of the, the cabal um, would come up to me and say, oh, that's transphobic. That's this. That's that. And I'm like, I'm nice to people off stage. <laughs> anyway. Um, totally. Uh, totally. Hey. Hey, you got I'm a softie for Ryan Rogers. Thank you so much for doing my podcast. This has been Highway Diary episode 398. Eric, you're you're a sweetie too. Thank you for having me. No problem.